practically made it. Christmas is here. It's right around the corner. My kids were asking the Google Home this morning, how many seconds until Christmas morning? That's, that's where we've gotten to. Uh, the anticipation that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks is in full force. Presents are wrapped under the tree. Travel plans are made. Christmas dinner menu is all set and ready to go. Parts of it even made, maybe. And that, that anticipation changes how we operate, doesn't it? Changes how we live. I don't know how it operates at, at your house, but at our house, there are some fairly clearly defined rules that have developed over the years. Um, my family has a tradition passed down from my father to me of being pretty, pretty accurate in guessing what we're getting for Christmas. A little judgment of the size and the shape and the weight. And when with a pretty high frequency, um, we, can, we can get to what's under that wrapping paper. So my mom has taken to keeping everything stuffed away in a closet till about 1130 at night, Christmas Eve. Um, and, and she has come up with this rule, if you guess it, I'll return it. Now, I'm pretty sure that's a hollow threat. But it keeps us on our toes. It makes us make statements like, I know what it is, I'm just not saying, um, which gives us a little bit of leeway in there as well. Um, my dad also has a rule uh, about waiting. He comes to play later on in Christmas Day, Christmas afternoon, as the turkey comes out of the oven, and he knows what it is already. The, the kitchen is hustling and bustling. People are coming and going. My, my job is potatoes and gravy, so I'm over on the other side of the kitchen. But I'll find a reason to circle around where the turkey is and, uh, and to just get one piece of that delicious, crispy skin. And, and Dad's rule is if you try to snitch the turkey, he will try to cut off your fingers with the carving knife. And, and you think I'm joking, and we're fairly sure he's joking, but that knife comes fast. you got to be quick. you got to pick the right piece, and you got to be in and out and gone because the knife moves. Um, we have these rules. Another one, maybe, I think this is pretty common, right? As Christmas approaches, don't you dare go out and buy something that you put on your Christmas list. doesn't matter if it's on sale. doesn't matter how bad you need it. You cannot buy that until December 26th because it's on your Christmas list. It changes the way we operate as we anticipate the coming of Christmas, as we look forward to this day. It changes the decisions we make, the things we do. Uh, it, it changes our whole culture for a little while. At least we'd like to think that it does. People are kind to one another, a little happier, a little more helpful. Merry Christmas is shared back and forth. Our theme coming into this Christmas has been the, the long-expected Jesus. So how does our waiting for this Jesus change the way we live? We spent the last two weeks trying to put ourselves in the shoes of a man named Simeon. We meet Simeon in Luke chapter 2, shortly after Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph come into the temple to bring the sacrifices required by the law. And as they enter, they're, they're greeted by Simeon. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise. After thousands of years of waiting, he's told, you're going to see him coming in your generation, Simeon. And so day after day, he's just eagerly awaiting. He's filled with hope and excitement. This long-expected Jesus is coming. I'm going to get to see him. The one that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, they waited for him and died, never having seen the promise. 
Anticipation has been building for a long time. The first question we asked trying to get into Simeon's head is, what is he waiting for? What exactly is he, is he looking for? And so we went all the way back. Genesis 3.15, right to the beginning, directly following the fall into sin. We're still in the Garden of Eden. It's not but hours before this, possibly, that everything was perfect. Relationship with God intact. No death, no sin, no thorns. They fell into sin and God finds them and and He begins to lay out for them the curse of sin. This is what sin will cause in our world. And right in the middle of that curse, God begins to lay out His promise. How gracious. This is the first promise ever made between God and man. Speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, He says, I will put enmity, war, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the promise is this, a man would be born, an offspring of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent, would bring final victory over sin and death and all of the suffering and chaos that had brought into this world. The curse, the penalty of sin would not last forever. A rescuer was coming. And so the the whole narrative of Scripture plays out, unfolding God's fulfillment of this promise. It's astounding. I hope, I think I've said this every week the last three weeks. As you're reading your Bible, it's not a random collection of stories. It is one story following that narrative. The rescuer is coming and God is saying, here's how I'm going to do it. Here's what it will be like. Here's what he's going to do. And in him in Jesus, we have victory over sin and death. He crushes the head of the serpent. That's what happened on the cross. The head of the serpent is crushed. Satan is beaten. The war is not fully over, though, is it? Satan is still causing chaos, sin, death still exists. No, no surprises there. We still feel pain and suffering and the fallout of sin. I don't know if you saw the news this morning. A a tsunami washed up onto the beach in Thailand and and took out a concert happening on the beach. That's, That's the fallout of sin. That's a broken world in operation. So next week, the next week, last week, we moved into the promise of the completion of that victory. Where is this all going? If you thousand years later, Israel was still waiting for this promised rescuer. God had revealed numerous things about how he would come and what he would accomplish. And then Isaiah 11, this amazing picture, this this ultimate reality. Here's what this king will bring about. Here's what his kingdom will look like. And it's the final, complete Wiping away defeat of sin and death and Satan and suffering. Absolute idyllic picture of the the lion laying down with the lamb. The the cow and the bear grazing together. The toddler playing over the hole of the cobra. It's complete peace. Complete rest. Joy. Happiness. We were made for peace. 
We were made to have that true, lasting joy and satisfaction. We, we feel that in our souls. We long to, to fill that. And, and every desire that you find in your heart, that deep longing for joy, every drive for satisfaction that's never quite met, try to fill those a lot of different ways at Christmas, don't we? That, that sense of nostalgia and, and peace, that, that hope that everything one day will be better. We try and fill it with food, alcohol, husbands, kids, all kinds of things. We try to fill that void and it's never quite met. It always falls short because it was intended to be filled in the presence of God, in that perfect kingdom, that place of absolute eternal peace when the rescuer comes, his kingdom. He will make everything right. He will make every pain and suffering somehow undone. That's what Simeon's waiting for. That's what the the long expected Jesus means to him. And he did get to hold the infant Jesus in his arms He got to see the the beginning of of God's fulfilling this millennia-long promise. But God didn't answer it all at once. God's rescue plan had begun. And it's not at all to diminish what happened at the birth of Christ and the cross of Christ. That was the decisive blow against sin and death. That was the moment that, that everything changed. But the reality is, it's not over yet. We are not fully experiencing what Christ has accomplished. That will happen when he comes again. And in many ways, we're still waiting for the same thing that Simeon was waiting for. It's like the kid that that opens up his present on Christmas morning, and it's a brand new shiny scooter in three feet of snow. He He can look at it. It's his. He can stand on it in the, in the living room and rock back and forth a little bit, but he's got to wait till spring till he can finally take it out and enjoy it. Jesus came first as Savior and sacrifice. But he's not done yet. He will come again as judge and king and make all things right, bring in the fullness of the promises that God has made. They will be completely accomplished. And so like Simeon, we wait. We look forward in eager anticipation. Now, Christmas is a great reminder. The Savior has come. It has begun. We are in the last days now. This is the, the last phase of God's rescue plan. And we ought to celebrate at what God did it at Christmas. And yet it also ought to well up in our hearts this, this holy sense of dissatisfaction. He's here, but not yet. It's just not quite there yet. There's a recognition of of not being where we ought to be, of peace not being fulfilled yet. So I think we can learn a lot from Simeon. I hope we can learn from him this morning as he waited in the temple for that first coming, that first Christmas. What does it mean for us to wait like Simeon waited? How does that anticipation of the coming Messiah change our reality today. So turn with me to Luke 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get you one. We want you to have God's Word in your hands, open, that you can see. Uh, My my goal is never to come and tell you what I think. 
I'm fallible human. Uh, my goal is to just say what God has said. And, and so that's our hope together, that we would see um, not my words, but God's words. Turn with me, Luke chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 22 and, and read down to verse 32. Luke writes this, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that's Mary and Joseph, brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when his, the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In Simeon, we see this great example of anticipating the Savior and how it affects his life, what that means for him to, to wait well. Three things I think we can pull from Simeon. I think waiting well means we walk in righteousness, we wait in hope, and we worship the Savior. Let me pray and we'll take a closer look. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word that we don't rely on our own thoughts, our own hopes and wishes, but that we have your solid word to stand upon, to trust in, written down for us in black and white. Lord, we are so thankful for Christ that at Christmas you began to fulfill these massive promises and that we get to live in this time of fulfillment and anticipation. God, help us to know what it means to wait well as we eagerly anticipate the return of our Savior and the completion of your good promises, Lord, that that would transform how we live, that that would change our, our perspective on everything. So, Father, be at work in our hearts by your word as you have promised this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the first thing we learn from Simeon is that waiting well means walking in righteousness. It's the first thing we learn about Simeon. It's really one of the few things we know about Simeon. Uh, he was righteous and devout. There is a ton packed into that little phrase. And since the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture, I, I have to assume, in fact, I'm confident, those words are not there haphazardly. Those are carefully, intentionally chosen words. So what does the Bible mean when it speaks of righteousness? What's it, what's it saying about Simeon? We're prone to think that righteous means to do good. The person who's righteous is the person who, who does the right thing. And, and that's not wrong. But that's not the full picture of what Scripture means. Um, righteous is a loaded term in the Bible, and it means so much more than just, just doing the right thing. There are a few places in Scripture, Isaiah, Psalms, Amos, that, that God condemns people 
as they offer their sacrifices, as they do exactly what he asks them to do outwardly. Look at Psalm 50 as an example. The Lord says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold, which, by the way, is exactly what he asked them for. He says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle in a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. I was hungry. I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the, mo- to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. They had come to do the right thing outwardly to perform their religious duty thinking they were giving something to God. Here you go, God. Here's our offering that you needed. I'll, I'll honor you. I'll, I'll please you. I'll add to the joy that you have. It's a service to God, right? And God mocks them. Seriously? The cattle in the thousand hills are mine. Do you think if I was hungry, I would come to you to ask for something? Do you think you're adding to me something that I lacked with your service? And he tells them to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Not, not giving me something, but being grateful for what I have given you. The last phrase there, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. That's what God wants. That's what their sacrifices were meant to be. Not them impressing God or giving something to God, but going to God and saying, help us. We need you. Recognizing that, that they were not able to please God by anything that they had and calling on him in, in desperation. God is honored as he gives to us, as he saves us from what we cannot be saved from on our own. Righteousness, even through the Old Testament, even through the the sacrificial system, it's, it's no different. It was faith. It was trusting in God to do what we could not do for ourselves. It was salvation by faith alone and trusting God. That's why Paul looks back in in Romans 4, verse 3. He quotes from Genesis, saying, What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a righteous man because he believed God, and God made him righteous. God counted that as righteousness. So what's God's definition of righteousness? It's, It's faith. It's trusting. Simeon was a man who saw his need for God, who trusted in God. Not by doing all the right things, not trying to prove ourselves to God. Hey, God, look what I can do. Look how good I am. Look how worthy I am. You should should save me. Not trying to fix ourselves for God. I can put this back together. I know I made a mess, but you let me me glue this back together, and then, then we can have a relationship again. God says, no, no, that's not it. Just come to me. Trust me. Simeon was righteous, but Simeon was also devout. There's a beautiful paradox here. The word devout means careful, meticulous. It speaks of a a detailed obedience. We would be tempted to think that if we're saved by faith, just by hoping and trusting in God, not by doing anything, that then we're off the hook for how we live, right? How we live doesn't matter anymore. I can, I can trust in God 
and go do whatever. Saved by grace through faith. Simeon reminds us that's not the case. He was righteous and devout. He's saved by faith, but he's careful to obey. He's meticulous in his obedience. James sheds light on this paradox for us. He asks this probing question. It's a tough question. Let me read a chunk of James chapter 2 for us. James 2, starting in verse 18. Someone will say to me, you have faith and I have works. There's his question put to him. Faith and works are separate. You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith, James says, apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. But even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then it's amazing. He goes back to the same verse that Paul was talking about from Genesis 15. He says, you say that faith and works are separate, that we're saved by faith alone and works have no part in this whatsoever. Well, look at Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? There's a phrase that makes us squirm. We've got to wrestle with that a little bit. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now, James and Paul are not arguing. They're not adversaries. They're on the same page. Paul is clear just as Genesis is clear. Abraham was not saved by his works. He was saved by his faith that was counted to him as righteousness. But James gives us the fuller picture, gives us the other side of the story. Martin Luther, I think, very helpfully puts it this way. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Track that? We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. True saving faith always brings a a changed life. It always brings about obedience to follow. We're not saved by our obedience, but that salvation, that faith is completed, is worked out in obedience. That's what it looked like for Simeon waiting for that first Christmas. He's trusting in God. He's, He's walking in righteousness, putting his faith in God to to do what he never could do in spite of what he had done, in spite of what he deserved. And I wonder, are you coming to God in that same humility? God, I have nothing for you. God, I can't add anything to your glory, to your joy. All I bring is need. All I bring is the sin that makes my salvation necessary. Can you help me? Would you save me? And then, are we living a life going forward, walking in that grateful obedience? A devout life. Putting faith into action. If you really believe in God and His goodness, would we not walk in what He calls good? Would we not follow joyfully in that, living by what He says? I ask you, do you always 
do what you think is right? Do you always try to, to do, do you always try to do what you feel to be the right thing? Sorry, it's a trick question. But we want to say, yeah, I always do what I think is right. I, I always do what I, what I feel to be the right thing. I guess if we're honest, we probably don't even live up to our own standards. But that's the wrong question. That's way above your pay grade. I'm sorry, I don't care what you think is right. I don't care what feels right in your heart. That's the wrong question. Are you opening God's word? Are you humbly saying, I don't know. My heart is, I'm suspect of what my heart thinks is right. What does God say is right? And in spite of what I feel, I'm going to do what God says. Looking carefully at God's word. Regardless of my desires, regardless of what I think, I'm his servant. I want to please him. I want to honor him. There are areas in your life, if you're honest, you just have to admit, I've not been looking carefully at that. That just kind of happens on autopilot. I haven't stopped to question. Maybe I allowed bitterness or anger to, to creep in. I've lived selfishly, dishonestly. I've lived a life devoted to, to serving myself. I can justify it. It feels right. Because of what they did to me, I have to be angry. My heart says so. Living a life devoted to myself, not devoted to Christ. Maybe I haven't even taken the time to ask, what does God's word say about this? To familiarize myself with who God is. Waiting well is not just living kind of haphazardly connected to Jesus. It's full devotion to him because he's coming back. Right? Like we have, do we actually see that in, in real living color? Do we actually believe that to be true? Like this is not like the Christmas songs. They just kind of have this wistful, some, some wonderful Christmas in the future. Everything to be okay. No, that's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is actually coming back. We're living in anticipation of his return. We're told that when he returns, he will return like a thief in the night. There will not be warning. There will not be time to like, okay... He's on his way. I'm going to get things sorted out now. No, no one knows the day or the hour. It, it could be today. Maybe I won't finish this sermon and, and I'll be okay with that. You probably would too. Um, it's a long one. Hang in there. <laughs> we don't know. Any minute. You ever, just, you ever just open the door and look outside? Check the sky? Anything? Trumpets? Nah. Try again in 10 minutes. We want to live that way. We want to have this anticipation. This is the next thing on God's calendar. It's coming. Listen to 2 Peter 3.10. He says this so well. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Think about that. Everything that we treasure here, everything that we live so, so fervently to try to gather and collect here, burnt, gone wiped away, and all of our deeds exposed. Your life put up on the big screen. I, I don't know what that means, but it's exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? How to change the way we live. Waiting well means walking in righteousness, this, this humble life of, of faith in God, and, and then devoted obedience. Secondly, waiting well means waiting in hope. 
Look again at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's, he's walking in righteousness, and then he's waiting in hope. He's eagerly anticipating the consolation of Israel. That's a powerful phrase, and I fear we miss it. I had to wrestle with that. Because when I think of consolation in my world, what does that mean? It means you're the loser, right? It means you didn't get the prize that everybody wanted. And it's just kind of this thinly veiled way of saying, sorry, you're terrible at this. Don't cry. Here's a distraction. And it never makes up for losing. Maybe I'm just a little competitive. But... But we think of consolation as like, oh, you got the consolation prize. That's not it. That's our culture. That's not what this word means. That's certainly not what God is saying. God's consolation is great. To to console means to comfort, to make it better. God's consolation is not lame. It's not a a pat on the head. It, it It doesn't mean that you were the loser It's a full consolation. It's the reward that that culminates everything, that that actually makes everything make sense, makes everything okay. Israel had been waiting. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 years at the time of Simeon, since that promise in in Genesis 3.15, they knew death, sickness, suffering, toil, relational struggle was the fallout of sin and they were weary of it this is not fun this is not good this is not the way it was meant to be they were they were eager to be set free from the tyranny of suffering and not only that but God had promised that the deliverer would come and would come through Israel so as a nation they're saying this is this is our role Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through David, this this Savior is going to come. They're supposed to be God's chosen people, His favored nation above every other nation of the world. And yet, where are they? They had been all but destroyed. People had been deported out of the nation of Israel and just scattered all over the known world. They had been ruled and taken over by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. They had no sovereignty. They had no national autonomy. And and they were just clinging desperately to their identity as a culture. And so the nations around are laughing at them. You're God's chosen people? How's that working out for you? Like... You're pathetic. This is a mess. This is what God's blessing looks like. Are you sure about this? We're sure. He said. He promised. It's coming. Okay. Keep going. The Messiah, the one that Simon is hoping for, the one they're all waiting for would be their consolation, would be the one who set the record straight, who turned everything back right again, would make it all worth it, would would vindicate them as this conduit of God's blessing, set them free from the curse of sin. And he would bring in this kingdom that we read about in in Isaiah 11, this, this kingdom of perfect peace and joy, full and complete comfort. That's the consolation of Israel. 
That's their hope. And so Simeon is trusting God, pursuing righteousness in this devout life, waiting in hope, in confidence that one day this is going to be over. It'll all be worth it. This changes our obedience, doesn't it? Jesus promised that following him would be difficult. I think we often miss that. It's not a good evangelism plan nowadays. Matthew 16, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would love his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. Give up your life and follow me. John 15, Jesus says, you will not be accepted by this world. You're not going to be comfortable here. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. If you live a life that is righteous and devout, it's just not going to be easy. 2 Timothy, Paul promises everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Get the picture. Count the cost here. This isn't going to be easy. This isn't going to be a walk in the park. Don't say, I'm a follower of Jesus, unless you're actually willing to lay it on the line, unless you're actually willing to follow Jesus. And the road Jesus walked was hard. A lot of people want to start following Jesus because this will make my life easier. Oh, this is the way. This will be great. Now I have God on my side. This is going to be perfect. And, and there are a lot of false preachers who, who give this ridiculous promise. Oh, yeah. Call on Jesus and you'll have all the money you need and it's going to be great. You're going to be healthy. He'll give you a new car. It'll be fantastic. It's infuriating. It's a lie. Jesus never made that promise. He promised the opposite. Look at the lives of John the Baptist, Peter, James, John, the apostle, Jesus himself. Not easy lives. They didn't have a, 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 a paved walkway. It was uphill. And, and it ended in death. Hard death. Or sacrifice. Jesus doesn't promise, follow me and everything will be easy. He says, follow me and it will be more than worth it. Matthew 19 Jesus said to them, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In that day, when Jesus returns, oh, it'll be more than worth it. Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 10, 11, the scriptures say, everyone who believes in the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. Now, is there benefit to following Christ today? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it doesn't shelter us from a lot of the chaos of sin, and it does, certainly doesn't shelter us from the, the ire of the world. But it'll be worth it. That's how Jesus lived his life. That's how he faced the cross. And Hebrews 12 calls us to follow the same way. This is looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
That changes our obedience. That changes the way we live. There's a reward. There's a a joy set before us. There's an eternal reward that is so great that the suffering and hardship in this world, and let's be honest, it's not small. But it will not even be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Tell your son to take out the trash. He might do it, grumbling a little bit, complaining, fear of discipline. Tell your son, I love you. I'm taking you to Disney World. Take out the trash so we can go. Okay, the trash is gone. And with joy and excitement, I can do that. This is great news. I'll get the trash. I get it. The gospel makes some hard demands. It does. If you don't get that, you don't get the gospel. Keep on loving those that are hard to love. Forgive those that are hard to forgive. Lay down your pride. Admit that you're wrong. Humility. Ask for forgiveness. Be vulnerable for the sake of Christ. Lay down your rights. You're not free to do what you feel is right. It's scary. It's difficult. But the call of Scripture is wait, obey, follow in hope, in eager expectation of that consolation. It'll be worth it. The great reward that far outshines anything you could possibly sacrifice on this earth. To to know for certain you will not be put to shame. Your friends that you've been sharing the gospel with who mock you and laugh at you for it, hopefully they will stand with you on that day. But you will not be put to shame. Their mocking will not prove true. We'll not look back at one sacrificial act of obedience and say, I wish I hadn't have done that. Does that kind of hope permeate, motivate, fill our lives? Are you, are you eagerly expecting that consolation of Israel, his reward? He's coming. It's like a kid on, on Christmas Eve. It's, it's coming anytime now. It's closer now than when we first believed. Do you really Believe that. Every suffering, every obedience, every devoted sacrifice will be short-lived and more than worth it. So to wait well means walking in righteousness. It means waiting in hope and then worshiping the Savior. Look at Simeon's reaction here. The Holy Spirit directed him to the temple. And he met Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus. And he, and he scoops Jesus up in his arms and says he blessed God. That's, that's worship language. And then you'll notice verses 29 to 32 are kind of in a margin. They're, they're offset in your Bible. It's because it's a song. In the middle of the temple, filled with people coming and going, Simeon breaks out into a song of worship. I don't know if he wrote it right there or he had it ready to go. But he sings out, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. What's he saying? I can die now. I can die happy, God. Why? Because my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. The rescuer has come. This is it. This is the long-awaited Savior, the one who would crush the serpent, who would defeat sin and death, who would bring everlasting peace. He's finally come. And he got not only to see 
the Savior, but to hold him in his arms. And he says this about Jesus, that he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Simeon saw clearly something that many of the Jews in that day had a hard time wrestling with. That God would bring this promised rescuer and his salvation through Israel, but it wasn't just for Israel. God put it pretty clear, Isaiah 49.6. God says to his, his servant, and that's a term that's used of the Messiah in Isaiah. And he says, it's too light a thing, too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back preserved Israel. I will make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus came from the Jews, but he offered salvation to the earth, to people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The picture there is to those furthest gone, to the worst of sinners, to the outcast and the downtrodden. Not to the perfect, not to the righteous in the way they thought of it, those who were keeping the law and doing all the right things and impressing God. He says, no, no to the downtrodden, the outcast, the unworthy. And in that, he would be the glory of the people of Israel. He's the the crown jewel of their existence. This this validated them as the people of God, this distinct honor that the rescue would come through them. And so Simeon worships. There's a couple things about Simeon's song of worship here. I think it's worth noticing. First, it's reverent and respectful. Maybe apply this as we think about our own worship. This is not a light and casual song. This is not Jesus is my buddy. Um, He addresses God with the word despotes, um, where we get our word despot. It has a lot of negative connotations the way we use it, but, but it just means absolute authority. God, you are the completely sovereign, unchallenging one, unchallenged one. And he calls himself God's slave. He comes with absolute reverence and respect. And secondly, it's full of scripture. Isaiah 49 is quoted in there, but that whole song is just filled with references, uh, a lot of them to Isaiah. Um, And that means that those who are hearing it, the the Jews of that day, they're hearing words and it's bringing them back to whole chapters of Scripture. It's rich. Thirdly, it's theological. It's not just about how he feels and and what he thinks. It's not light and fluffy. It's, It's centered on theological truth of who Jesus is and what he has done And then finally, it's Christ-centered. God is glorified as Christ is magnified. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is what he will accomplish. And the cool thing is, remember, Simeon is singing this song of praise before any of it's even happened. He has not yet lived this life and suffered and died and rose again. He was still just an infant. It was enough for Simeon. God has promised it will happen. He's begun this work. He's going to complete it. That drives him to worship. How much more ought we to worship as we wait the completion of this promise, having seen it started? In Christmas, we have God's down payment, His guarantee. This is is begun. The plan is in action. He sent His Son to die for sinners. What are the chances you think He won't return to collect? So we ought to worship. 
And yes, that means worshiping in, in everything we do. Worship is so much more than singing. We, we use some narrow categories sometimes. Um, there's a broad category here, right? 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Everything you do, you ought to be able to say, to God be the glory. This is worship to you, God. Work hard at your job to the glory of God as worship. Sit down and eat your steak to the glory of God. Take a well-needed nap as worship to God. Parent your children as an act of worship. Love your spouse as an act of worship. Forgive your brother as an act of worship. It's a great grid through which to run your life as we think about what does it mean to live devout life? Well, can I take every part of my life and say, this is worship. This is for your glory, God. Our lives ought to be lived out as an act of worship. But why? Right? We, we so easily fall back into thinking that God needs this from us, that we need to give him something. We need to, we need to try and earn this. We need to try to, to live and make ourselves worthy of his death. The call to a devout life, we turn it into a, a duty. That's not it. No, it's a life of worship, not driven by guilt, not, not trying to, to do enough to impress God or please God, that's already been accomplished. That's not what's happening here. That has been fully and completely given by faith. It's about a life of eager joy and expectation of hope because he's coming back, because he's rescued us. I want to I give him my life. I want to serve him. I want to honor him. And I believe that he's good. And so I believe that what he says is good. And so I believe that obedience is good. It's faith overflowing into action. It's believing that God's rewards are worth it and that his word is good. Worship is so much more than just singing. And yet there's something significant about song, isn't there? Singing to God in worship. I'm just going to wrap this up and invite the worship team to come up. You know, the Bible has over 400 references to singing. There's 50 direct commands to sing. The longest book in the Bible, Psalms. It's a, it's a collection of songs. Listen to these commands from God. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Psalm 47. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. So as we celebrate Christmas, like Simeon, waiting, having seen God's promise just beginning to unfold, just beginning to be fulfilled, we wait eagerly, anxiously for the completion of this great rescue plan. We ought to live our lives with hearts and mouths overflowing, spilling over with, with worship. That's what Christmas is all about. Our eyes have seen His salvation, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. It's, it's rejoicing. This rescuer has come and living in that sense of 
eager expectation and hope. What a beautiful thing. Let's, let's sing together. How can we do anything else? Would you stand?